So let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to you now, that you would open up our hearts and our minds by your spirit. We pray that you would speak, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that we might be changed and shaped and molded to be your people, marked by love in this world. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. So I want to look together with you at a very interesting and a very, very strange story in the Bible. And the setting is this huge drunken party, and the party gets crashed, and the party crasher is the God of Israel. And so this is interesting, interesting stuff. And so if you have a Bible and you have not done so, uh, open with me to Daniel 5, Daniel 5. So where we pick up the story, Daniel has been displaced from his homeland in Israel. He is now in exile in Babylon, and we've been kind of tracking his story over the last several weeks throughout this book. And where we pick up the story today, the young and courageous Daniel of chapter 1 has now become the much older Daniel of chapter 5. He's in his 80s, and he's worked in the government of Nebuchadnezzar, and now Nebuchadnezzar is dead. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar's son, that is evil Merodach, which by the way, if you have a son and you name him evil, you're just asking for trouble. That's just not a good thing to do. But his son, evil Merodach, took the throne and he reigns for two years and then he's assassinated. See what I mean? He was assassinated actually by his brother-in-law, uh, Negalastar. <laughs> What a fantastic name. If evil Murdoch doesn't work out for your first child, you can try Neglastar. Well, Neglastar, his brother-in-law, killed evil Murdoch, who was, of course, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Neglastar also gets assassinated. And then there's this priestly revolution. And then after the priestly rev revolution, are you all tracking right now about what's happening? We're in Babylon, there's Nebuchadnezzar, then evil Murdoch, and then Neglastar, and then after him is Nebuchadnezzar, or wait, but no, no, there's a, a priestly, this is all very important, so I hope you're paying attention. <laughs> so there's this priestly revolution, and then this Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne in 556, and he rules in Babylon until the empire comes to an end in 539. But in our story, we don't meet Nabonidus. Instead, we meet a guy named Belshazzar. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast. So who is this Belshazzar? Well, in 1854, a British consul named J.G. Taylor was exploring some ruins in southern Iraq, and he found several cylinders that contained a bunch of lines of ancient cuneiform writing, which is the ancient writing of the Babylonian Empire. And they deciphered the text, and they discovered that they spoke about a Nabonidus and his oldest son, Belshazzar, who served as a co-regent. And so the reason why Belshazzar is called here a king in chapter 5 and that there's, uh, but, you know, is that he was co-reigning with Nabonidus. Now, why isn't Nabonidus mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1? Well, these cylinders described Nabonidus as a warrior who often was out to battle. 
He was a warrior king. And so he went out to fight the battles while his son, according to these ancient cylinders, stayed back home in Babylon and played the role of playboy hosting all of the parties in Babylon. And it totally fits the scene of chapter 5, verse 1. King Pelshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. So it's interesting, as the, the scene unfolds before us, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar threw this big, crazy rager, and there's all of this wine flowing, and it says that he invited his wives and his concubines there to this party with all of the mucky mucks in the Babylonian empire, all of the rich and powerful and affluent, all of the nobility class was there at this big party. And interestingly, at a party like this for state leaders, it was usually the case that women weren't invited. But here, all of the wives and all of the concubines were invited so that in the drunken pleasure, they might fulfill all of the desires of everyone there. And it's just this drunken, kind of boozed out scene with the royal harem. And so Daniel is sketching for us a scene that is marked by coarse decadence, excess, and self-indulgence. And it only gets worse because look at what it says in verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, that's a euphemism for when Belshazzar began to really get drunk, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. So the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, or that Belshazzar goes and grabs are the vessels that belonged to the conquered Israelites, and they were the vessels that had a sacred place in the temple of Israel, which was where the very presence of the true and living God dwelt, was there in the temple. And these vessels were the same vessels that caught the blood from the necks of the lambs that were slaughtered for the sin of Israel. And he calls for these vessels to be taken and he fills them with his wine so that he at this drunken feast might, might party and start raising a toast to the false gods of Babylon in an effort to spite the God of Israel. Now you just get the feeling when you're reading this that things are not going to go well for this king who is pulling off these kind of shenanigans. Ever been watching one of those movies before and you watch, you know, she opens the door and you're doing, don't open that door. And then she goes in the room and you're like, don't go in the room. And it just feels ominous. Like you know what's going to happen. And the scene here is painted as a picture that's ominous and we know what's going to happen. It's not going to go well for Belshazzar and it doesn't. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Belshazzar, in this context, would have been on a platform lifted high above the throng that was gathered at his party. 
And according to protocol, they would have taken their cues from the king and they would always be looking up at the king and whatever the king was doing, they would kind of follow suit and whatnot. And so now here, the, the, the wine is flowing and the music is pumping and, uh, you know, the king is raising the vessels and, and he and the rest of the crowd, you know, they're doing their dance and they're raising their glasses to the gods of, you know, gold and silver. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees it. Illuminated by the lamp there in the corner, there's a hand and it's writing And he is absolutely terrified. You know, the king has seen many men come before him in fear and trembling. And now it is the king who is fearful and who is trembling. And notice the description of the fear and terror in the text. Look at what it says. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The description of fear or terror from the top of his head down to the bottom of his feet. His face is ashen white. His mind is anxious and his knees are knocking together. And then strangely it says his limbs gave way. There was some curiosity about this phrase. What did it mean that his limbs gave way? And, and there was a scholarly study done by an Old Testament scholar named Al Walters many years ago that was published in the Journal of Biblical Studies on this phrase, his limbs gave way. And he spent, you know, ages, you know, pouring over all of the ancient resources, looking at this phrase in all kinds of different contexts. And he came to the conclusion, the conclusion of his scholarship was that this phrase meant literally that he lost control of his bowels and he soiled himself. Went through all that biblical research to say the king pooped his pants. That's just what, that's what it says in the Hebrew. Jonathan, it's what it says in the Hebrew. Don't look at me like that. But he's terrified. The king is absolutely a mess now. He doesn't doesn't know what to do with himself. He thinks he's losing his mind. He is completely freaked out. So he does what he did in chapter two and what he did in chapter four. He calls his therapists and his psych doctors and the magicians and the astrologers and uh, anyone he can find in this royal court, come and help me. What's happening here? And of course... What happens in chapter 6 is the same thing that happened in chapter 2 and chapter 4. He calls all of his, his royal helpers and they are inept and they are incompetent and they can't help him out at all. And so after his uh, intelligence community fails him, then the Bible says he was really terrified. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So now everyone is freaked out. Everyone is terrified. And then who comes in to save the day? His mother. The queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change, for there is a man in your kingdom. There is a man in your kingdom. You don't know about him. You have ignored him. Uh, He has been out of sight and out of mind for years now, king. But this man is one in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. King, get your act together and call in Daniel. And even a big bad king has to obey his mama sometimes. And so he calls in Daniel. And the pounding on the door rouses Daniel from his sleep. And then this 85-year-old is wiping, as he's wiping the sleep from his eyes, he's brought in before the most powerful man in the world. And look at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? Look at the king still in all of his arrogance as he begins to speak with this man in his own terror. He needs to put him in his place and remind him that he was an exile after all and that his father took him from a foreign land. He says, I've heard the spirit of the gods is in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, the psychologists, the therapists, nobody could help me, but I heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck. It's like he can become a Laker. <laughs> and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel stands before the king and he delivers, and look at what he says. He says, look, king, I got three things to say, say to you. Number one, you can keep the outfit. I don't need your gold chain. Uh, number two, after I give you the interpretation of this dream or of this uh, handwriting, I think you'll agree with me that third ruler in your kingdom is not going to do you or me any good. And thirdly, a little history lesson can help you, king. And it's interesting because before he launches into many, many tekel parson, I mean, he could have gone there. He could have gone straight to the interpretation, many, many tekel parson, here's what it means. But instead of going straight to the interpretation, he gives the king a history lesson and he talks to him about the father of the nation, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, King, you could learn a lesson, and you should have learned a lesson from Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down low from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him and he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild beasts. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. 
So Daniel provides for, the, for, for King Belshazzar a little theological interpretation of the mental breakdown that was experienced by Nebuchadnezzar. He said, God brought Nebuchadnezzar down low so that Nebuchadnezzar might know that God and not Nebuchadnezzar is the ultimate sovereign ruler in all of creation. And God brought Nebuchadnezzar low so that he might come to know that Nebuchadnezzar answers to this God in whom his very breath is held. And Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson and he returned to his sanity when he came to acknowledge that God is the Lord, that God is the ruler, that he holds his breath in his very hands, that he is upheld by this God and that he is accountable to this God. And then he looks Belshazzar directly in the eye and says to him, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. You have known all of this, but you have still lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand your breath is and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. He says, Belshazzar, you have failed to learn from history. You failed to learn the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. You should have known, you should have humbled yourself, but instead you exalted yourself and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and me you have not honored. He says, you cannot plead ignorance before the face of God, Belshazzar. And now you will face the judgment of God. And finally, he reads the writing on the wall, verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many tekel parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. God sets limits on human arrogance and pride and on human leadership, on human governments. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Belshazzar, you stand before the God who sees all and knows all, who sees you all the way down. And God, though you view yourself as such a heavyweight, God views you as nothing but a lightweight. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And then Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, Belshazzar, your time has run out. When? Verse 30, that very night. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. As the story goes, the Medo-Persian Empire actually came upon the Babylonian Empire on October 10th, 539 B.C., and they came in the night while Babylon was partying. 
Babylon should have known that their enemy was approaching, but they ignorantly and arrogantly partied nonetheless. And the Medes and the Persians came in, and in a night, the city was taken, and God's judgment through this foreign nation fell upon this arrogant king. And our story ends. That's a good story, isn't it? But we need to stand back, we need to ask, how is the story intended to speak to us this morning? How is this intended to form and shape us as God's people and make us aware of God's purposes in this world as we live in the midst of our own Babylon? Well, I just want to draw one phrase to your attention just in our concluding moments to reflect upon. And it's a simple phrase. It struck me as I was reading it. it, it, It's so striking. It's arresting. Look at verse 24. It says, Then from his presence the hand was sent. We said in the beginning that the God of Israel here is acting as a party crasher. And notice how he crashes the party It is through a hand that he sends into the middle of the party. And so I want to just think with you for a few minutes about this hand and what it might say to us. This is a strange picture, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine just standing in the back like I'm up preaching and all of a sudden like you guys all start looking terrified and I look behind me and there's a hand writing on the wall. Be freaky. I tried to draw a few hands. I heard somewhere that in art, hands are one of the most difficult things to draw, so I tried a few times. That was my second attempt. (laughs) Finally, on my third attempt, I nailed it. (laughs) But I want to think with you about this hand that was sent from heaven. And the first observation I have, I just want you, the hand was sent. It was not asked for. The king did not summon the hand. The king with all of his power and might did not conquer a foreign land and pull the hand back into Babylon like he did the royal vessels. The hand arrived unannounced and uninvited into the middle of the king's party. And you know, oftentimes we can think that we live in a closed system universe. That we inhabit this world that is simply an endless succession of naturalistic causes and effects, or maybe political causes and effects. The powerful make their decisions and move, and, and, and they make their moves, and stuff happens in the world, and that's just what happens. We are trapped down below here on earth in a closed system of just human and natural actions. But what this hand reveals to us is that the universe is not closed. Babylon and her parties are not closed. The United States and our parties are not closed. They're open to the invasion of the hand. They're open to God actually breaking in to our world and doing something new that puts us on notice. Now, of course, we can think about this in very personal ways. Some of you, though you were going in your life, you thought life was under your managed control and care. Anybody here ever been under the misimpression that your life was underneath your own management and control? Any of you real good at keeping things underneath your own management and control? Any of you work real hard at that? 
and you try to eradicate anything from your life that isn't managed and controlled by you. And we can live, we can act, we can move in this life as if our lives are just closed and it's all about our own actions. But sometimes, unannounced, uninvited, there comes a hand with a message. And what I'm talking about here are those uninvited circumstances in your life that are inexplicable, that like Nebuchadnezzar, they expose you, they reveal something in your life that you wanted to keep hidden, that you wanted to keep underneath your own management and control. Maybe it was your hidden addiction to alcohol or pornography or to pain medications Maybe it was the way you operate in your business. Yeah, at church, you look good, you're upright, but man, you're cheating on your taxes and you're, you're kind of like doing your thing in your business and there's some shady works going on there. Maybe it was in your own marriage, you knew like you were holding on to stuff and you were bitter and you were angry and, and you just kept being cold and bitter and words and abusive and, and, and you thought it was all underneath your control and then all of a sudden you felt exposed because there was some suffering, some trial, something was found out, something was made known, and the hand showed up in your life and you interpreted it as the grace, the gracious, the merciful judgment of God that exposed you, that brought you low. Anybody here ever have a hand show up in their life? Uninvited and unwelcome. Now, of course, like Nebuchadnezzar who got that dream, and an uninvited bout with mental illness. And like Belshazzar, who got the hand with the uninvited writing on the wall, we have a choice as to how we are going to respond. We can either respond like Nebuchadnezzar or like Belshazzar to the hands that show up in our life, to those nightmares that seem to become realized before our very eyes because of the repercussions of our own stupidity, our own foolish decisions. You can respond like Nebuchadnezzar and you can humble yourself before the face of God. And you can reject that old way of being destructive in your relationships, being self-absorbed, self-indulgent, self-centered. You can turn away from all of that and instead you can honor God and you can embrace humility and you can recognize your own finitude and your own need before the face of God. And you can choose the course, not of self-centeredness, but of actually love for the neighborhood that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about and that he embraced. Or we can be like Belshazzar, and we can see the writing and only be confused and still exert our own arrogance over those people who are underneath our own power. So the hand showed up it showed up uninvited, it showed up to expose, it showed up but it showed up for the sake of bringing Belshazzar, bringing Nebuchadnezzar to their senses. It shows up to bring us to our senses. But if we don't respond, it can show up actually to be a final word of judgment. And those sirens, they, that was all purposeful. You know, it's interesting, I, I, when you look at, at Daniel chapter 6 through Daniel chapter 7, these chapters are in the kind of middle section of the book, and they are written in Aramaic. They're the only portion in the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic. 
And chapter 2, 3, and 4 parallel chapters 5, 6, and 7. Actually, I should flip that. Chapter 2 parallels 7. Chapter 3 parallels 5. Chapter, I mean, chapter 3. Are you guys tracking with me? Come on. I'm just seeing if you're listening. Help me out here. As the story unfolds, chapter 2 parallels 7 because it's about four kingdoms, right? Four metals and then four beasts. We'll talk about the four beasts in a couple weeks. Chapter 3 parallels 6 because those are stories of deliverance, deliverance from the fiery furnace and then deliverance from the lion's den. And then chapter 4 parallels 5 because they're about two kings and how God confronts them with the word of judgment. And these two chapters at the center of this movement are intended to evoke a response that either looks like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. Either God's judgment for you in your life, his exposure in your life, will be a judgment of grace that actually leads to your own healing and restoration and sanity because you come to recognize that God is God and you are not and you are in deep need before him and you are in deep need to love your neighbor as yourself and you've not been doing that and he breaks you and he exposes you or you will be like Belshazzar who the word of judgment does not come as a judgment that leads to restoration. Instead, it's a judgment that leads to his final disillusion and end. You know, I was thinking yesterday, uh, we had a memorial service here. How many of you were at the Trampy memorial service? But it struck me, every time I participate in a funeral memorial service, it reminds me, and it, it should remind all of us, that our lives are short, and none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. And so how we respond to God today is what matters. How we respond to neighbor today is what matters. And so he puts Belshazzar on notice, your days are numbered. The hand says, You've been weighed in the balances. You're a lightweight. You don't have the weight I am looking for. You have the weight that the world likes. You've got money and power and prominence and fame, but you don't have the true weight of glory that I value, says God. You don't care for the poor and the marginalized. You are not extending yourself for the care of the neighborhood in Babylon. And so he says, you're a lightweight. I've weighed you in the balances. You are found wanting and I've exposed you. And now your kingdom is coming to an end. And I think this is the message of the hand that you and I need to hear this morning. Now, in thinking about this hand, every time I look at it, I think it's a little better than I thought it was last time I looked at it. That one's probably a little better. I think maybe my first attempt was the best. You know, here in Daniel 5, God sends a hand to expose. His hand enters into the party at Babylon to bring that kind of party that is marked by excess and decadence and exploitation of others that's built on the back of slaves. The hand breaks in to bring that party to an end, to crash that party. And one day, hundreds of years after this event, when the hand broke in, God would send 
not a hand, but he would send his full self into Babylon, as it were, so that he might crash the party of Caesars and of the Herods and of the Pilots who were full of their own self-importance and their money and their position. The incarnate God comes into the world and he embraces humility and poverty and service and self-sacrifice and ultimately he bears in his own body our judgment for our sin. He steps into this world in order to expose the falsehood of how we live and all of the exaltation, all of the the fascination, all of the praise we heap on all of the wrong kinds of gods, the gods of silver and gold and prominence and power and entertainment and technology. And he says that is not where it's at. The only God who is worthy of worship is the God who enters into this world in humility, who humbles himself and ultimately is exalted. And ultimately, in Jesus Christ, on the third day, God exerted a great power over the, the, all of the kingdoms of this world, all of the Babylons of this world, and he said the Babylons of this world are coming ultimately to nothing And the eternal kingdom is now being given to this one who comes in humility to serve and love and give, who I exalt to the highest seat of cosmic authority. And it is this one that we are all called to orient our lives around and to walk in his way.